want to extend a warm welcome to those of you who are here in the room with us, as well as our online church family joining us via live stream as well. Super excited that you're with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be diving back into, for the last time in just a minute, the letter of First John. So we're going to wrap up that series and really looking forward to that. But before we do that, just want to kind of keep on your radar the fact that we are now two weeks away from Easter, right? The, the day that changed everything in human history. The reality is the cross of Jesus means nothing without the empty tomb of Jesus. And so we're going to be celebrating that reality in two weeks together. So a couple things. One, first of all, I just want to encourage you, make plans to be with us that weekend. Uh, just so you know, we're doing a little bit different. So we're not just doing the Easter celebration Sunday morning. We're actually also going to be having a Good Friday service at 6.30 p.m. That's going to be a, a completely different thing. So don't come Friday night thinking you're going to get the same thing as Sunday morning. You'll be disappointed. It'll be totally different, very contemplative. Uh, we really just kind of want to sit in the darkness, the pain, the loss of Friday night so that when we regather on Sunday morning, it really is a time of incredible celebration, okay? So I want to encourage you, be there Friday night, 6.30, or be here Friday night, 6.30, uh, and then again, either 9, 15, 11 uh, on Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, the second thing is, beyond just being here yourself, is I just want to encourage you. We've got these awesome little nifty uh, invite cards for Easter. In fact, we did uh, two different shapes. So the more creative of you, you get the coaster, right? If you like the, the round shape. And then you got the more traditional little rectangle shape. And so let me just encourage you. This is my pastoral challenge to you over the course of the next two weeks. Invite three people or three families to come with you. You got two weeks to do it. I promise you, if you really think about it, you jog your mind, you've got at least easily three people you know in your circle that are, you know, in your classmates at school or your workplace or your neighborhood or someplace like that. You know folks that are unchurched, dechurched, or maybe they're far from the faith. And so let me just encourage you, don't let this time pass you by. All the studies, all the stats show that people around Easter time and around Christmas time are more apt to accept an invitation to come to a church service if they're invited by someone they know and they trust. And so don't waste that opportunity, friend. We've made it easy for you. So just grab at least three of these. If you want to be bold, you can grab more than that. Grab five or ten of them, however many you want. Invite somebody to come with you. It's going to be an awesome weekend two weeks from, uh, from now. All right? Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had somebody uh, think that you were being arrogant when you know deep down in your heart you weren't actually trying to be arrogant or prideful at all? Have you ever had anybody ever had that experience outside of me? A few of you. All right? We got a very holy church here at New Life. There's like only five of you. So um, so that's happened to me a few times over the course of my life. One time that really imp just is very much imprinted in my memory was I transferred in middle school. I transferred from a public school uh, to a private high school. So I finished uh, middle school to a public school, transferred to a, a, a private high school. Uh, now, now the, the driving force behind that for me was to play football, right? And so I didn't want to wait my turn at a big public school. I wanted to be the star uh, right away in a smaller uh, Christian school. But my parents, uh, for, for them, the driving reason was to keep me out of prison. And so that was, that was probably a, a very wise move uh, on their part. Now, if you don't know me super well, you may not know this, but by nature, uh, I'm a pretty introverted guy. By nature, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty shy. And uh, in ninth grade especially, I was very shy around pretty girls, all right? I don't know what it is about pretty girls when you're like 13, 14, 15 years old, but they just intimidated me. And I had a friend about, about a year after I transferred to this private school uh, say to me, hey, Chris, you know when you first came here, everybody thought you were cocky and arrogant because you wouldn't talk to anybody. 
In fact, there were, there were a couple of the cheerleaders that were really into you, but they just assumed you were a jerk because you wouldn't talk to them. And I was like, oh, no, I missed my chance. I missed my chance. I'm like, I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm not trying to be cocky. I'm like, I'm just shy. I just didn't know what to say. I was intimidated around them. And for the rest of my high school career, for some of them, that was the dude I was. I was this arrogant, cocky uh, football player. That's just kind of my, my reputation. And I felt so misunderstood. I felt so misunderstood, like stupid cheerleaders. Why are you gonna always gotta be like? So um, I say all that to say this. In our, in our culture today, you probably notice this, confidence or assurance with anything in life, but particularly as it pertains to spiritual truths or spiritual beliefs is seen as arrogance. You notice that? Any sort of assurance or confidence in anything in life in our culture today is seen as arrogance. In fact, being humble today in our culture means being unsure and doubtful about everything. And yet, John, our author, one of the 12 disciples, Jesus' best friend on planet Earth, what John has been arguing the entire letter is that followers of Jesus can have confidence and assurance both in life and in eternity. So intent is John on our confidence as Christians that actually in these last nine verses that we're gonna look at together today, he uses the word no seven different times. Like he, he wants us to know. It's just this flavor of assurance and confidence in the gospel in Jesus Christ like he wants us to know that we know so the last living apostle John he's going to close this powerful little letter with a flurry of just incredible promises for the follower of Jesus as a matter of fact what he's going to do is he's going to shine a light on on five profound truths that I'm just hoping and praying are going to encourage your soul this morning if you're already in Christ now, if you're here, you're watching online, you're on the fence, you're not a Christian, I'm happy that you're here. My prayer for you is that these five truths, these five realities might entice you to consider Jesus in a fresh way. That it might, it might just cause you to consider, man, what would it be like for me to give my life to Jesus? To, to return from my sin, to repent and follow him, to make him the Lord and Savior of my life. That's my prayer um, for you. So before we dive into the word, let's, uh, let's pause and, and pray and ask for the Lord's help. God, we... We come to you, and, and I know for a fact in a room this size, uh, there are folks that are coming in here. Some of them have had a great week. God, they were maybe down in a conference uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, and you kind of come back, and you're on a mountaintop experience on a spiritual high for sure. Uh, there are folks in here that have had that kind of experience this week, and yet I know there's also a lot of people that walked in here or tuned in online who have had a really hard, dark, deep painful, confusing week. There's a lot of pain in this world, God, and I, I just pray that wherever people are on the spectrum of the, the highs of life or being in the valleys of life, that you would allow us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, just to still our thoughts, to slow our, our minds down enough, to calm our spirits and our heart enough just for the next 30 to 40 minutes so that you can speak to us in a life-changing way through your written word. So Holy Spirit, would you be here? Would you be present? Would you speak to us? Would you take these ancient truths? Would you apply them in a new and fresh way that would be transformative to our lives? And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, First John chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 13 through 21. That'll wrap it up uh, in this series this morning, starting in verse 13. This is John, Jesus' best friend. He writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to believers, those of us who would profess faith in Jesus Christ, that you may know, there that word is, that's the first of seven, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Again, the first of seven no's in this text that we're going to see this morning. Here again, the idea is one of assurance or confidence for the believer. Now, now let me make this statement. It is, it is not arrogance for the believer to claim the promises of God. Let me say that again. It is not arrogance for the believer or follower of Jesus to claim the promises of God. In fact, I would argue it would be arrogant for us to dismiss the promises of God. Uh, to quote my own uh, seminary professor, Danny Aiken, I love this quote, he says this, Christianity is not a I hope so faith. It is not a I think so faith. It is an I know so faith, right? And so what the Apostle John is gonna do is he's gonna give us five assurances, right? Or five foundations for the follower of Jesus that we can just take to the bank. And my prayer for you again is that you would just bathe in these realities, you would bathe in these truths as a follower of Jesus. And if you're here not a follower of Jesus, this would be something that would, would woo you in, would interest you, would whet your appetite uh, for what it would mean to follow Jesus. So number one, the first thing that we can be sure of, confident in as Jesus followers is eternal life. Contrary to every other worldview out there, contrary to every other world religion out there, Jesus teaches that eternal life is found in him, and more than that, that it is actually secure in him. I want you to listen to his words in John chapter 10. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them, that's what John just said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, when Jesus uses that, that word in the Greek, no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand, then he says it again, no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. That word in the Greek, no one, I did a deep dive on this this week. Does anybody know what that word no one means in the Greek? Nobody! It means nobody. Some of y'all fall for that every time. Nobody, right? <laughs> not you, not your mama, not Vladimir Putin, not soul-sucking high school cheerleaders, not a demon, not your sin, not even your own doubt. If you belong to Jesus, ain't nobody prying you out of his hand. That's what he's saying. It's a promise. You are his Forever, This is a beautiful promise for those of us who know and follow Jesus. But if you're a theology nerd, this is what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That if you belong to Jesus, you will belong to him from now and throughout eternity. And I think what John is saying is, believer, you can live and die in confidence because the gospel is true. Not because you've somehow earned it or I somehow deserve it, but because Jesus has earned it on our behalf by living a perfect life, by dying our death, by rising again, offering us freedom and abundant life now and forever. This is the good news of the gospel. And John is saying you can absolutely know, follower of Jesus, that your eternal uh, destination is secure in Jesus Christ. This is incredible. In other words, we don't, we don't have to just kind of wander through life like, am I in? Am I out? What's going to happen when I die? I'm fearful of death because I don't know where I'm going. No, no, no. John's saying you can know that your eternal security is found in Jesus, and it is secure now. It's secure forever. This is incredibly uh, good news. This is profound. 
And that's the first truth of five. Uh, we got four more to go, so let's get going. Verse 14, he says this, and this is the confidence. Again, notice the language throughout this section. Confidence, assurance, the word no, seven times. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So that's the second truth that you can just be confident in, you can be assured of as a follower of Jesus. Number two, God hears and answers your prayers, believer. Now, now for me, still, after 22 years or whatever it's been of following Jesus, this is one of the most mind-blowing truths found in Scripture to me. That the God of this entire universe that we just sang about in the last song, the God who breathed out the galaxies and the stars and everything in creation, that he would bend his ear to hear and answer me. This is an incredible truth. Don't let this be lost on you if you've been following Jesus for a number of years. Like, this is incredible. We can go to the God of this universe and he hears us and he answers. This is incredible. I want to just kind of highlight this from David's writings in, in the Psalms. And uh, the older I get, the more I, I love the Psalms. It's kind of my default now. If I, if I just need something to read, this is where I go. But David had a, just kind of a beautiful understanding of the theology of prayer. And I just want to share a couple of, of things that he wrote. This is Psalm 3. David wrote this. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he, underline that, and he answered me from his holy hill. And I lay down, and I slept, and I woke again. For the Lord sustain me. And what David was saying, man, the nations can rage against me. There are armies all around the world who are coming against me. And yet I know that I can make my request known to the God of this universe. And he hears me and he answers me in such a way I have the confidence that I can actually lay down at night and sleep in the midst of the storm. Because my God has heard me and he will answer me. Psalm 4, he continues, he says this, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will, underline that word, the Lord will hear when I call to him. Now what a beautiful promise. Again, the, the God of heaven hears us and he answers us. Now listen to the words of Jesus himself. In John 14, Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we, we hit on this a couple weeks ago because John talked about the same thing in, in chapter 3. Does this mean, is John saying, is Jesus saying that anything I ask for, if I just kind of sprinkle some Jesus magic dust on it by saying in Jesus' name, that he becomes my heavenly cosmic butler and gives me anything I want? So I can just go to God and say, hey, God, I want a Maserati and I want a beach house in Bali. Bam. Done. Is that how it works? Well, our experience tells us, because most of us have tried it, <laughs> that, that no, that's not exactly how it works. Right? Most of us are not driving a Maserati. Most of us are not vacationing in the summer at our beach house bungalow in Bali, right? Now, if you'll notice, and this is an important thing, if you notice, uh, verse 14, uh, John is not saying, he is not saying that when you follow Jesus, God becomes your cosmic butler who exists to give you all of your whims and desires, in fact, he adds a qualifier in verse 14. He says, if you ask anything according to whose will? Your will? Your desires? Your preferences? Your wisdom? No, no. If you ask anything, John says, according to his will. Now, I want to be clear. Listen, guys. God hears our prayers, 
as his sons and daughters, he answers every single time. I think where some of us miss the boat, and some of us even get, uh, or we can get discouraged in our own prayer lives, is that we don't realize that God can and typically does answer our prayers with three different answers. You know what those answers are? Yes, no, wait. Yes, no, wait, right? He can answer in all those three ways. And we realize this as human beings, but then somehow we lose that logic when it, when it comes to our relationship with God. I'll prove it to you. Um, what's the definition of a spoiled child? Is it not a kid that never gets told no or wait? And is, is there anything more annoying in this world than a spoiled child, right? It's like, man, I will. When your mom's not looking, I will knock you into tomorrow, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I don't advocate for child abuse. Um, no, we, we know, even if you're not a Christian, man, we, we just know as human beings, good parents do not spoil their kids, all right? Good word for young mom and dads. Good parents do not spoil their kids. My kids ask me for stuff all the time. Sometimes my answer is, yes. Yeah, baby, you can, you can have that bowl of ice cream. Sometimes my answer is, no, you can't go play in the street in the middle of the night. You might get hit by a car. Sorry, son, bad idea. There are other times where I say, wait. The answer is gonna be yes, but not yet. You're not ready for that yet, all right? So sometimes I answer yes as a father. Sometimes I answer no. Sometimes I answer, wait, Right? Our Father in heaven is the same way. Now, why do I answer my kids in all of those ways and not just say yes every single time? Here's the answer, because I love them. Because I love them and because I can see further down the track than they can, I can see things that they can't yet see. And again, God in heaven is the same way with us. I love the way Tim Keller, pastor, author up New York put it. This will be on the screen. Where he, Keller writes this. God will either give us what we asked for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. That's good, right? God will either give us what we asked for or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we were all-knowing like he is all-knowing. And here's what we know for sure. God hears us, that's clear in scripture. God answers us and he will grant us anything prayed according to his will. And so let me just say, I would just encourage you, man, keep, keep praying for the Maserati and the beach house bungalow. Maybe God wants to give it that to you one day. That, I don't think there's anything wrong with those prayers. But what we do know is that he will undoubtedly answer yes to prayers like, God, help me love my spouse well today like you love your bride, the church. God, I just had an exhausting day at work. I got, man, I got nothing left in the tank and I'm pulling in my driveway now and I know I need to love my family. I need to love my wife and serve her well. I don't have it in me. I feel selfish. I feel like she needs to serve me. God, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give me what I don't have. So I can love her well, so she can see Jesus through me. God, I've got a crazy busy schedule. I know I've got 70 hours to work this week. I'm barely gonna get any time with my kids. God, would you help me maximize the minutes and the seconds? Help me not come home and just plop down and turn on Netflix. God, help me invest in my kids. Help me point them to the gospel. God, would you give me courage to share the gospel with my neighbor, my classmate, my coworker? Would you give me the courage to invite them to Easter so they could hear the good news of the gospel? 
God, I'm praying for the four million people walking planet Earth today who have never even heard your name, have never even heard the name of Jesus. God, would you raise up missionaries? Would you establish churches so that they could know of your goodness through Jesus like I know you through Jesus? Those are the kind of prayers that we know. They're slam dunk guarantees that God is gonna answer us in the affirmative because we know those are God's will. They're written all over the pages of scripture. And so here's what it means, just to kind of put maybe a little bit of meat on the bones for you. Here's, here's what it means. Here's what it looks like to pray in faith. God, here's what's on my heart. God, here's what's weighing me down. God, here, here, here's what hurts right now. Here are the, the, the pain points in my life. God, here, here, here's what I want you to do. God, if, if you could do the, way, the things the way I want them to do, this is what I would have you to do. God, here's what I want you to do. But God, my confidence and my devotion is not contingent on you doing what I want you to do. So whether you answer me the way that I want you to answer me or whether you have a better plan, my faith, my trust, my devotion, my confidence, my love for you is not gonna be shaken. Now th think about the way that Jesus prayed the night before he went to the cross in the garden. Do you remember that prayer? What was Jesus' request to the Father? Father, Father, if there's, if there's any other way. Father, if, there, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. But then how did he finish the back half of that prayer? And yet, and yet not my will but yours be done. Now understand this, believer, God will always do the right and best thing. But I also want you to understand this, God is not a reluctant father. He loves us. We are his beloved, his cherished sons and daughters. And I believe with all my heart, he wants to, he longs to answer our prayers. And I fear oftentimes, man, we, we see uh, fewer victories in our lives, especially when it comes to spiritual things, because we pray far too little. Our prayer lives are too flimsy. He's not a reluctant father. He wants to answer our prayers. I love the way um, 18th century English evangelist George Mueller put it. He said this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. And isn't that beautiful? Prayer is not overcoming a reluctant God and a reluctant Father who doesn't really want to give us good things. It's laying hold of his willingness. He is a good Father. And so I wonder, how, how would you pray differently if you really believe that? Like if you really saw God as a willing, loving Father who wanted to answer your prayers, how would that affect how you come into his presence every single day of your life? Would you pray differently? What John is saying is, guys, listen, because the gospel is true, we can have confidence that God hears us and that he will answer our prayers in due time. These are incredible, beautiful promises. We are assured of eternal life. We are assured of a God who hears and answers us. Number two, and now we move into a couple of verses, starting in verse 16, that have absolutely perplexed scholars for centuries, and uh, we're gonna solve the riddle in about 90 seconds, all right? Verse 16. John writes this, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, so that he's gonna give us a couple categories of sin. Here's the first one, kind of sin that doesn't lead to death. When you see a brother or a sister doing this kind of sin, he shall ask and God will give him 
uh, life to those who commit sin that does not lead to death. So God will restore that brother or sister when we pray for a person that's in that sort of sin, okay? Um, he moves on, and now he's going to give us a second category of sin. There is a sin that leads to death, okay? So we first talked about the sin that doesn't lead to death. There's a type of sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, apparently, there's a type of sin that does lead to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't forbid us from, from, for, from prayer for that type, type of person. He's just saying it's not required. Verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. You got that? Good? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father. Man, you didn't know John was going to throw in the uh, unforgivable sin as a bonus, the last, last part of the book, right? Five hopeful truths and one thing that will make your brain explode. Thanks, John. Um, let's start with what's clear in this text, and then we'll move to the less clear part. Here's what's clear. John is saying, remember we're talking about prayer here. He's saying, believer, as you pray, don't forget to look up and see the needs of others around you. Now, that apparently was a needed reminder back then. I think it's a beautiful, helpful reminder for us today because how many of us, if we're being honest, we tend to be selfish in our prayers and self-focused, don't we? And if you're honest, just think back to your prayer life, the last, I don't know, day, week, month, whatever it is. Most of our prayers revolve around ourselves, right? God, help me do this. God, help me feel better. God, give me more money. God, give me a better job. God, give me this. God, give me that, right? We tend to pray in a very self-focused way. And so John is reminding us, there's nothing wrong with those kind of prayers, but make sure that you lift your eyes up to see the needs of those around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Heard a pastor say recently, I think it was a really good thing. He said, uh, if God, this is a great thing to consider. If God were to answer every single prayer that you prayed in the last month, would anything in the world change or just in your world? If God were to answer every single prayer that you've prayed in the last month, would anything at all change in the world or just in your world? That's probably a pretty good barometer for whether we've got a really selfish prayer life or whether we've got a more uh, healthy, fully orbed view of uh, theology of prayer. Now, let's move into the, the area that's less clear in this text. What's all this stuff about sin that doesn't lead to death? Hey, pray, pray for those people. If they're in a sin that doesn't lead to death, pray for them. But the sin that leads to death, you don't, you don't have to pray for that. Now, if you're like me, you kind of read that and you're like, man, I kind of need to know what the sin that leads to death is because I'd kind of like to avoid that particular sin, right? Like all the other ones I might be okay with a little bit, but that one, the one that leads to death, like I kind of need to identify what that is so I don't commit that sin. Now, again, this is not gonna surprise you. Several different views, scholars, pastors throughout the ages. I'll just give you where I land for the sake of time. After studying many hours this week and making my own brain uh, hurt, um, I think the key here is context, right? And when it comes to scripture, context is always king. Right? And John is writing, if you remember all the way back to the beginning of the series, John is writing to believers who are watching others reject sound doctrine and deny the gospel. Right? We've talked about the Gnostics, these false teachers that rose up in the church a lot. So he's writing to these believers who are watching these other people reject the Bible and deny the gospel. And what I think John is saying here, and Alistair Begg, a pastor up in Cleveland, Ohio, has been very helpful in, in helping me understand this. What I think John is saying is there are two categories of sinners in the world. This is really important. Two categories of sinners in the world. There's a, the first category is those who sin, repent, and trust in Christ. Right, so those, listen, we all sin, but those who sin, repent, and trust in Christ. 
right? So for most of us, that's our experience, right? We're, even after we follow Jesus, we sin. There's Holy Spirit conviction in our lives that causes us to repent and brings us back into a restored relationship with the Father, right? That's the pattern of the Christian life. We stumble, we fall, we get back up, we dust ourselves off, we run hard after Jesus again. That's the first kind of sinner. But there's a second category of sinner John is laying forth for us here, and that is those who sin and do not repent and do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this sin, John said, leads to death, meaning I think spiritual death here, right? Eternal separation from God forever in eternity. Now, I think there's a clear connection here to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, right? You probably, if you've been in church, you've probably heard this before. Maybe this has been one of the passages that kind of stumped you as you've read through it. But there's this part in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus says this, every sin will be forgiven except the sin of, anybody know? Yeah, you guys know, you're good Bible students. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And Jesus goes on to say, the person that commits this sin will never be forgiven in this age or the one to come. Now that could seem confusing at first glance as well, but think about it. What's the Holy Spirit's primary role? Is it not to convict people and point people to Jesus? Isn't that his primary purpose is to point people to the Son? Right? And so when Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying then, what John is saying now is that it is possible. Listen, this is important, guys. It is possible for a person to so harden their hearts to the truth of the gospel, to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, that their hearts become permanently hardened. And John is saying there is a point of no return. There is a point of no return where God says, okay, have it your way. Like I've sent you so many people, so many friends, so many family members to share the hope of Jesus with you. I've sent the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, to point you to me so many times. And there comes a point where God says, okay, your will be done. You don't want my will done in your life, so your will be done in your own life. And God gives these people over to their sin. Now, again, I think this is not a particular sin. Some have argued, well, maybe the unforgivable sin is uh, suicide. Maybe it's homosexuality. Maybe it's, there's a laundry list of different sins people have proposed as being the unforgivable sin. I don't think it's any of those. It's not a particular sin. It's a kind of sin, right? Just this willful, continual, perpetual rejection of Jesus and his spirit and his work in your life. Now, if you're in, your, you're in here and you're or watching online, you're a Christian, and you're like, you're worried about it. You're like, crap, man, have I, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Like, oh, man, have I, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I committed the sin that leads to death? The fact that you're even concerned about it is a pretty good indication that you haven't crossed that line. Right, because the hardened heart is unconcerned with the things of God. So if that's even on your radar, I think that's probably a pretty good sign. Now, let, let me just also take this opportunity to say, if you're here, you're watching online, and you're not yet a Christian, let, and you're, you're just, you would have to admit, man, I'm, I'm, I'm resisting the call of God on my life. And you're just putting it off, man. I'm, if I can just have my fun in high school, college, or in my 20s, I'm gonna party and do my own thing, and at some point I'll give my life to Jesus, or I'm pushing it off until this point in my life, or I'm gonna, gonna just gonna kinda push Jesus off until I get to this stage in life. Let me just, just caution you from a place of pastoral care. Be careful, friend. Like there, There's a reason the scriptures say that today is the day of salvation, man. We're not promised tomorrow. 
If the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Jesus, let me just urge you, would you accept that invitation today? Would you find hope in life in Jesus? Because what John is saying here is there is a point of no return when you have so hardened your heart that you're no longer even capable of hearing or accepting the Holy Spirit's offer of eternal life in Jesus. Friend, don't let that become your story. That's the most tragic story you could possibly imagine. John continues on this topic of sin. Look at verse 18. He says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, as as we've said throughout the series, John's not arguing for sinless perfection for the believer. In fact, early on, you remember, he talked about, hey, listen, if you say that you have no sin, that you're a liar, you make God a liar. So John is clear, even after we follow Jesus, we struggle with sin. That's something that we're gonna wrestle with. But this is the idea, the one who belongs to God does not keep on sinning. So we've talked about this. This this verb in the Greek is in the present continuous tense. So what John is saying here is, is the one who has been born of God does not live in continual, habitual sin with no conviction and no repentance. So we may stumble into sin, but we don't fall away from Christ, right? We get up, we dust ourselves off, we run after the Savior again. And so that's the third truth that I think John just wants us to be confident in as Christians. Number three, we ultimately have victory over sin. It's not our master anymore, right? We're not slaves to it anymore. There's this incredible story about uh, Augustine as a fourth century uh, church father, and um, man, there's this incredible story. He was known before he came to faith in Jesus Christ as being a bit of a womanizer. And so there's a story after he comes to faith in Christ, uh, he's walking down the street one day and he, he runs into one of his former mistresses and she calls out to him. And Augustine just keeps walking. He doesn't even turn around and look at her. He just keeps walking. And she calls out to him louder. She says, Augustine, it is I. And he doesn't miss a beat. He just keeps walking. He doesn't even look back. And he says, yes, but it is no longer I. Right? And this idea, man, that, it, that his hunger, his appetite for things in this world has changed. Right? See, when we're born of God, sin begins to lose its grip on us. It doesn't enslave us anymore. For sure, sometimes we choose it. But it quickly makes us sick, right? We want to turn away from it. We want to turn back to our Savior. We certainly, as believers, man, we don't embrace it. We don't justify sin in our life. We don't make excuses like, I couldn't help it, or I was born this way. No, in Christ, you are reborn with a new nature, with a new purpose in life. Victory over sin is ours. That's what he wants us to know. And so, believer, when we stumble, let's not wallow in the mud of guilt, shame, and condemnation. Let's lay hold of our victory over sin and Satan as conquerors in this world. And here's what you'll discover. Over time, what we discover is that as we walk with Jesus, as we abide in him, we experience more and more victory over sin as the months, years, and decades roll by. This is, by the way, what we call the process of sanctification, right? A big Bible word that just means becoming more and more like Jesus over the course of a lifetime. And John is reminding us, hey, follower of Jesus, victory over sin is ultimately yours in Jesus. And so, listen, sometimes I hear, and I've been guilty of this, sometimes you'll hear Christians talk like this. Oh, poor pitiful me. I'm just a little sinner saved by grace. I got no power to overcome anything and I can't enjoy life. I'm just kind of going to sit here and wallow in my sorrow until Jesus comes and saves me one day. Just Eeyore Christians, right? No victory, no excitement in their spiritual life, just defeated, down in the dumps, depressed, 
always sad, always sorrowful, man. I'm like, we need to read these promises and internalize them. Like even last week where he said, listen, we are victors. We are conquerors in Jesus Christ. This is who we are in him. We need to embrace our new identity in Jesus, including being victors over sin. Look at verse 19. He continues on. He says this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here's again, another we know statement from John. Uh, this time he says, we know that we are from God. What an absolutely profound statement, right? In a day and age, particularly nowadays in our culture today where kind of a, the identity crisis just runs rampant across our culture at breakneck speed. John is saying, no, 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 Christian, here is your identity. This is who you are. In fact, man, they're, they're, your identity is not in question. It, it can be certain. Here's your identity. It's not in doubt. You are a child of God. And you belong, you belong to him. You don't belong to the world. You don't belong to the evil one. You don't belong to this culture. You belong to God. And that is the fourth assurance that we have as followers of Jesus, that we belong to God. We are his children. That is part of who we are. That's our identity. Verse 20, he continues and he says, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding or knowledge so that we may know him who is true or, or him who is truth. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And what John is saying there is, listen, guys, truth is not just an idea. Truth is not just a statement. Truth is not just a proposition. And this is why truth can't be subjective. There is no such thing. You hear this in our culture all the time. Now, your truth versus my truth. That's not a real thing. There is the truth. It's objective, not subjective. And ultimately, the reason John makes this argument is because he's arguing truth isn't an idea. Ultimately, truth is a person. His name is Jesus. And so the fifth thing that we can be sure of, we can be confident in as followers of Jesus, number five on the screens for you is Jesus is the truth. He is the ultimate truth. And listen, y'all, if he is true and if we're actually in him, there's nothing standing between us and spiritual freedom or abundant life. These are beautiful truths that you can absolutely build your life on. And then John finishes his letter with this little nugget. Verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Goodbye. It's like so random, man. He's, he's like dropping all these deep, profound truths about who we are and victory in Jesus. And man, we belong to him, you know, all these things. And he's like, yeah, don't worship idols. See ya. And um, you kind of read that. You're like, man, what is... How do, why is he finishing like that? But I think when you really look at it, it makes a lot of sense. Because what John is saying is, hey, listen, guys. He's writing to those Christians then, through the Holy Spirit, to modern-day Christians today. He's saying, listen, don't trust in any other gods. Right? For sure, a statue can be something you bow down to, right? A golden image or a, a rock statue or something like that. But it could also be, an idol could be anything that, that, that you put in God's place in your life. It can even be good things. So anything that you put in the, in the place where only God belongs in your life is actually, according to the scriptures, an idol. So a, a, a career, for instance, I see a lot of Christians do this. Career, achievement, that kind of becomes their idol, the primary focus of their lives. If you're younger, maybe school, making good grades, that you just become obsessed with that, man, I gotta get an A in this class, and I gotta get an A in that class, and I gotta have a good SAT score because I gotta get into this college or this school or this department or whatever it is. It can become an idol in your life. Be careful. 
Relationships, man, if I, if I could just find that, good, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that right husband, that right wife, that whatever, then I would be happy. And we begin to idolize relationships in our life. Maybe for you, if you're, if you're married, I see this a lot with married folks, man. A lot of married folks idolize their kids. They just begin to live vicariously through their kids, right? And everything in their life begins to center around little Johnny and little Susie and their lives and what they want and all their extracurricular activities and soccer and swimming and football and everything. If we're not careful, we can actually make our kids the center of our lives when it ought to be Jesus. It could also be certainly uh, material stuff, the Maserati we talked about, the beach house in Bali, all that kind of stuff. All right, let's, let's, let's bring it a little bit closer to home, entertainment. How many hours this past week did you spend watching Netflix or streaming movies or TV shows or flipping through social media just mindlessly watching reels on YouTube or Instagram or Twitter or whatever? Maybe let's bring it even a little closer to home. What about an unhealthy relationship with food or drink? And we're really good at that as Americans, right? We don't like to talk about that one because that one steps on our toes. An idol can be any good thing that we make a God thing. An idol is anything that we make a functional savior in our life. Anything that we turn to for satisfaction, pleasure, contentment, that we should be turning to Jesus for, that becomes an idol. And John is reminding us, hey, listen, don't waste your life chasing after little g-gods. Don't waste your life chasing after little g-gods when you can know and experience a dynamic relationship with the one true God of this universe. And I want to take us back to the very beginning, the words of Jesus in John chapter 17. This is what Jesus says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Listen, friend, there is confidence, there is assurance in this life and in eternity through Jesus Christ. I want to share with you, as I was finishing up my sermon prep this week, um, this, this, this hymn. If you grew up in church, like back in the 80s, 90s, you probably know this hymn, but it's called Blessed Assurance, right? Some of you are familiar with it. And as we close, the band comes. I just want to, just want to read you some of the lyrics. And if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to encourage you to, to embrace these truths. This is all we've talked about in this text. Allow these truths to just kind of bathe your heart and your mind. But here's some of the lyrics of that old hymn. It says this, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Let's make that our story and our song this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we are grateful that through you we can have confidence, we can have assurance, that we don't have to walk through life um, just confused or unsure or doubtful about everything, including the most important things, our eternal security and destination, that we, we can actually know with certainty, with 100% confidence that we're, if we are in Jesus, our security in eternity is forever safe with you, God. Would you help us step into 
our identity as followers of Jesus, that we're victors over sin, that we are sons and daughters of the king of this universe, that we can have assurance in this life and the one to come, Father. And I also would just pray for anybody who's watching online, anybody who's maybe even in the room this morning who would have to say, man, like, I, I don't have that assurance. I have no assurance. I'm just, I'm just hoping. I'm just crossing my fingers that one day when I stand before King Jesus that I'm somehow going to get in. Maybe I did enough good stuff. Maybe I came to church enough. Maybe I did this enough or whatever. I'm telling you right now, you will never do enough. You can't stand on your own merits. That's why the gospel of Jesus is so glorious and it's the best news in the world that when we couldn't earn our way to God, he earned our way there for us by living a perfect life, by dying our death in our place, by rising again, offering us forgiveness, freedom, and life in him. So God, I just pray if there's anybody who has not accepted that free invitation of forgiveness of sin, a relationship with you through your son, assurance of eternal life through Christ, that they would make that move this morning, that they would open their hearts, they would open their lives, that they would repent of their sin, turn to Jesus, and give their lives to you, God. We love you. We could never thank you enough for what you've done for us through the cross, through the empty tomb. We love you. We pray all these things in the beautiful and strong name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's worship.